Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, open your Bibles, as I asked before, to Acts chapter 7, um, an inc- extremely long chapter, and it's going to be dealt with uh, today. And then I, my plan is, Lord willing, that I will be able to come back to it again in a couple weeks' time and look at it from a different perspective. There's so much going on, and yet it does not lend itself to a typical type of outline, and so that is the challenge for today. I will tell you that if you uh, are not real comfortable with using a Bible, there's a Bible uh, underneath uh, the chair in front of you within a few seats. Please, it's there for you to use. And you can turn near the back because the numbering system for the pages it has for the Old Testament, the numbers, then the New Testament starts all over again. Go to the back part of the Bible and it, and our passage will be in 96, page 96. Uh, Also, that will help because it's the version from which I will be teaching out of, and so it will make uh, following along very easy. So I encourage you, take that. Um, Our church is built around the preaching and the teaching of the Bible, and so it's always important that you have a Bible and that you have it open, and so that you yourself are not simply accepting what's being said because somebody's saying it, but that you're looking down on your own and you're saying, yes, that is what it says, And now you can be convinced that the one teaching is being faithful or not. This is the longest sermon or speech, however you wish to describe it, in the book of Acts. It is 60 verses, and I'm going to read the whole thing. I debated whether or not I should, and then it's like, what am I saying? This is the actual Word of God. Uh, So why don't I just read the Word of God, and then if I have to cut my sermon short, at least they've heard the Word of God and not just me yammering away up here. So with that in mind, I invite you to turn your attention to chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and we will go to the end. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he, being Stephan, said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he departed from the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and from there, after his father died, God removed him into this country in which you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be aliens in a foreign land, and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. 
And whatever nation to which they shall be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the, 12, uh, and the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. And yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there passed away he and our fathers. And from there, they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the times of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so they would expose their infants and they would not survive. And it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being mistreated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. And when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight. And he approached to look more closely, and there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with your, our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. And our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him in their hearts, turned, and their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. And at that time, they made a calf and brought it sacrifice to the, uh, and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophet, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rampha, the images which you made to worship them. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as a prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears. They rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. May the Lord bless his word. As I said, this is the longest sermon or speech in all of the book of Acts. 
Why it's the longest and why it was recorded in this way is likely because it is a critical moment in the history of and the flow of Acts because up to this point, the gospel has been basically uh, centered around Israel alone. It has been taking root, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people have become Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, but it's been located in Jerusalem, and it's really uh, something that's happening among the Jews. Uh, this is uh, something that happens in the Bible. Uh, Paul makes it very explicit that the gospel is for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And what is happening here is that though thousands of Jews as individuals have repented, the nation continues to be in rebellion. And now here it is again brought to, uh, the, brought out in such a clear way that it's obvious that the nation is still in an unrepentant state. They are still rejecting Jesus as the one promised, and now they are turning away. And from this point forward, no one is playing games anymore. No one is pretending anymore that things might get better. From this point forward, now what will happen is persecution. From here on out, the church is going to be persecuted, the people will be pressured, and the people will begin to flee. And as they flee, they will go out into the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel. So he is now speaking in response to the many lies that were said about him and something that we looked at last message. I'm going to quickly give some observations, uh, just some background for us to understand and appreciate what's going on here. I failed already to do something. That was, I wanted you, as I read, to pay attention to all the places where the term deliver or saved or some words along those lines were mentioned all the way through the, uh, that speech. And then also all the places where rejected or repudiated or some such word was also used because that is one of the controlling aspects of this speech. What stands out, though, as I read it, hopefully to you, is that this is exceedingly God-centered. At no point is Stephen even an issue. Stephan is talking. He is literally on trial for his life. He has finally been given a chance to speak in front of the Sanhedrin, the formal council, and instead of defending himself, he literally chooses to ignore his own situation, and he makes it all about God and how the people have responded to that. What's also unique in this passage is it is not Christ-centered at all. Up to now, in chapters 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, every time there was a sermon, it was all about Jesus, right? We have heard it in every possible way that Jesus is the one promised, and you killed him, and God raised him from the dead. Over and over again, this has been said. Yet, Stephan there does not mention Jesus Christ even once. He does make a passing reference to him in chapter 7, verse 52, but he still doesn't even use Jesus' name. Stephan also chooses in this uh, sermon, I call a sermon, speech, however you want, uh, key individuals in the history of Israel. 
These are all men who are highly esteemed by all Jews. Um, He shows how they were chosen by God and yet rejected by Israel. That's the key. They're all chosen by God, but they're all rejected by Israel. And what he's doing is he's implying some very close parallels that we'll look at next time I'm preaching, Lord willing, uh, with Jesus Christ. That just as these men were, the ultimate one, Jesus Christ, raised up by God, sent by God, you rejected him. He's not trying, though, to get out from under the condemnation he's facing. Instead, he embraces it. He accepts the fact that he's probably going to die. And instead of trying to survive, he chooses to speak truth. I can tell you with absolute certainty that when you make safety your highest hope and goal, truth will never be what you do. When safety is your highest love and goal, truth doesn't matter. But when truth matters, then it does not matter about your own safety. Stephen shows in this speech that they are faithful shepherds or unfaithful shepherds. And they are an unfaithful nation. Just as their forefathers abused the faithful prophets, so too are they. And they're doing it right then to Stephen. Now, there's two main themes in this speech. The first is that God has faithfully given Israel faithful leaders to point them to God and to sustain them. That's the first, is that God has constantly and consistently raised up leaders who are faithful that can guide them and sustain them. And the second theme is that Israel in turn rejects those leaders and instead turns to idols. In fact, even turning good things into idols such as the tabernacle. At the core of this speech, we see here a description of the power and the nature of sin. Now, this is where my sermon is now beginning to develop. What we really see here, though, is the description of the nature and power of sin. We, we tend to think when we talk about sin, we tend to think about it as um, something that we think about or we actually do. If you ask the average person, what is sin? They almost invariably will talk about a wrong attitude or wrong action. But in reality, what sin is, is first and foremost, a power that dominates Sin always is a dominating power over all things. This is most bluntly seen, and I invite you to turn to it in Romans chapter 3. If you are not sure where that's at and you have the Pew Bible, it's page 120. Keep your finger where you were, but page 120 in chapter 3, verse 9, you all know this. What then? Are we better than they, we being Jews, better than they, the Gentile? A Gentile, remember, is just anyone not Jewish. Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and and Greeks are still, and then here's the little phrase, under sin. That little phrase, under sin, speaks of a domination. We are under the the thumb of sin, if you will. We are under the impulse and the power of sin. We cannot escape it. Just like we are under the sun, and there is no way to escape that, we are under 
the presence and power of sin. And then he illustrates it in verses 10 through 18 in the most brutal of ways. He says, as it is written, and now he just starts quoting Old Testament passages. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is what it looks like to be under sin. It's brutal. All of us, beloved, you must grasp this, all of us from birth are under the power and the domination of sin. All of creation is under the power and the dominion of sin. There is not one part of creation not under it. And so my goal today is to develop, you might turn back to chapter 7, Actually, don't bother. We're going to be going somewhere else. Um, My goal today is to develop through Stephen's speech. I want to develop the idea of sin's incredible hold on humanity. How sin pervades and perverts and dominates all things. Because, beloved, until we resolve the issue of sin, nothing else changes. Sin is such a power that if we do not understand what it's doing in your your life, my life, the church's life, the world's life, then nothing you see makes sense. And you will always keep looking for answers in all the wrong places, so to speak, because you don't grasp the enemy. Sin is the issue. This is what Stephen really is doing here. He's not trying to get out of trouble, beloved. His life is not the issue. He's not trying to free himself. He is handling this instead like a man of honor. And a man of honor understands his duty. And his duty dictates that he not speak on behalf of himself and he not defend himself as an honorable man. What he must do is stand for truth. He must be found as a faithful spokesman of truth. In reality, what he's really doing is he's functioning like an Old Testament prophet to a disobedient nation. In fact, he's a lot like Nathan the prophet when God sent him to confront David after David had committed murder and, and adultery, and then he gets all self-righteous and about things, and then Nathan looks at him, right, and he points at him and he says, you are that man. You are that man. And that's exactly what Stephen has done. He relates to them their whole history of how God over and over and over has faithfully raised up men to guide them, point them to him. And they have faithfully rejected them every time. And then he says, you are just like your forefathers. You are those men. They are men who are under sin's power. They are false shepherds, starving and abusing the flock of God. They are false teachers, robbing God's people of the richness of his truth. They are whitewashed graves. 
who dress and act so piously while overflowing with the stench of self-righteousness and deceit. And what is sad is that you and I are no different. Apart from God's gracious intervention, you and I are no different. But why? That's the question. Why? And that's what I hope to answer today. Why? Why are we no different? Why is it that even when we try to reform our lives and even when we try to act this way and that, why do we always find ourselves back in the same old place? Why is it that we cannot silence those thoughts? Maybe we never bring those thoughts out into the open, right? We never reveal those thoughts, but they're there. When was the last time, perhaps, that you were just lying there, doing nothing, minding your own business, and the vilest of thoughts entered your mind, the most foolish of thoughts? Why? Well, the reason is a fancy word in the Bible. It is that every person in and of themselves are what is known as unregenerate. Unregenerate. Unregenerate is just a fancy way of saying that we are spiritually dead. So if you'd rather, you can just say we're spiritually dead. Why? Because of our sinfulness, of the state and the power and the presence of sin in all people. And the Bible is explicit about it. It doesn't try to soft, uh, soft serve this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In Colossians 2, you were dead in your transgressions. Trespasses, transgressions, these are all things of where you have gone beyond what God said is right, proper, and good. You broke the law, if you will. Add to that the list we just read in Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, not even one, none who do good, and you get the idea. The Bible starting at the very beginning and running all the way through to the end, starkly displays two truths. The first truth is that all of our ways are under the dominion of sin. We are dead in our sin. That's the first truth. And the second one running all the way through the Bible is that we are rescued from that state only and ever by the grace-filled saving work of our Creator. We are people under the enslavement and dominion of sin, and the only way out is through God's saving grace. So to be unregenerate is simply to say that every aspect of a person is irreparably stained by sin. And it's for this reason that the Bible says that we must be born again or regenerated. So it's here that I thought I would use my old sermon illustration. Many of you know it, but the newer ones don't, on the gunk. So let me roll out my famous or infamous gunk illustration. Now imagine then, if you're trying to understand, what do you mean by this dominion of sin? And what do you mean by every aspect of me is tainted by sin? I'm not sure I like that, agree with it, or comfortable with it. Well, allow me to introduce to you gunk. Imagine a massive barrel of this gunk that is the most vile-smelling, disgusting stench you've ever smelled. It also has a way of cloying itself to you that is, is exceedingly uncomfortable. 
And let's imagine that I dip you in this barrel of gunk, so to speak, until you are covered literally from head to toe. There is no part of you on your body not covered and coated thoroughly with this gunk. Now, let's make you a man, a husband specifically, and that you then go about your business living out your life. And you go home and you greet your wife and you walk across the rug. And what you've done is just left gunky footprints across the rug. Again, it's not just filthy. It is the most vile stench you've ever had. Your wife's not too tickled over this, of course. You decide that you need to get rid of this gunk, and so you crawl into the shower, and you begin to rinse it all off. And and you discover something about this that you didn't understand, that it's magical. So this gunk splatters everywhere. As it's washing off of you, it's now gunkifying, if you will, the shower stall. And now everything in the shower, from the top to the bottom, is coated in this gunk. But the thing that's wild about this gunk is you can't get it off you. As much as it comes off of you, it replaces itself that instant. So no matter how much pours off of you, it's still there as bad as it was in the beginning. You get out of the shower a bit frustrated with this, and now you're toweling it off, and all you've done is done what? You gunkified the towel. You walk out of the restroom, and, and you look across the room, and you see, by the way, in my mind, I visualize our, our house on Ranchu every time I tell this story. So in, if, if you wonder, in my mind, I'm literally seeing my wife on a couch and, and everything. It's the, my house on California's layout that this whole illustration is based off of. You don't really care, but too bad. Um, You walk out, you look across, and you see your wife doing laundry. And you're a good man. You want to help your wife. So you walk across the living room, putting gunk every step. And you say, here, honey, let me help you. And you pick up the clean laundry, and you begin to fold it. And what have you done? It's now gunky, right? It's all gunky. But let's make this worse. This magical gunk that coats you from the outside literally sucks into the very pores of your being. So from the inside out, you are gunky. In every shape, form, concept that you are, into the very dreams, into the very thoughts, into the very words, into the very intentions of your thoughts before they even became a thought. The very wellspring of what makes you, you, is coated in this gunk. And so now you look upon your wife, the wife of your youth whom you love, and you say, I love you, but it's coated in the gunk. You think of good things that you might do for her, and it's all gunky. How do you escape that? Your wife is greatly offended except for this hard reality. She's as gunky as you are. In fact, the whole world is this gunky. And so nobody notices it. So we now judge one another based upon our externals and our words, all the while failing to grasp that the most best that we can offer is still utterly coated and destroyed by Gunk. And all gunk is, if you haven't figured it out by now, is sin. 
It is that reality that you carry, and you can't escape it. It is what makes you dead in your sins. So what I want to do today is make some very simple but very serious observations about the nature of sin. I want to show you how it dominates everything but God. Everything. And then show you how this state of being dead in sin pervades the whole speech of Stephen. So how does sin dominate everything but God? First, we need to understand that the unregenerate mind cannot, hear me, cannot and will not love, submit, trust, or obey God. The unregenerate mind cannot, will not love, submit, trust, nor obey God. If you can, turn to Romans chapter 1. That's on page 118, if you're wondering. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. And I'm going to be making very brief, because of time, I'm going to be making very brief observations on this. um, And I want you to hopefully follow this up with some more intense reading and considering. But in Romans chapter 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. What are they doing? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is the reality that he gives about humanity. That what we are is we're defined in ungodliness, which is a lack of love or care about God. We live our lives maybe in a very pleasant way, but it never considers God. And unrighteousness, which is just acts that are not in keeping with God's law or character. But then the thing that's important for you to understand is that they are in the active, consistent process of suppressing the truth in that unrighteousness. Now, what truth is it that's being suppressed? Because, verse 19, that which is known about God is what? It is evident where? Within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. The unregenerate soul will never receive Christ, they will never believe because it is against their very nature. The unregenerate, dead-in-sin soul, which is everyone throughout all time, cannot believe the gospel, will not believe the gospel, will not love Christ because they are in an active state of suppressing in the face full knowledge of God. God has already made himself known to them. It is within their hearts and it's within the creation that they dwell within. It is all starkly displayed 
before them and within them, and they suppress it. You suppress it. I suppress it. Apart from God's grace, that's what we do. The natural man is not wanting, nor is natural man needing some level of revelation or knowledge to believe in God. It's not like he's like, well, if only I had this, then I could believe. He has it, and he'll reject it. The natural man actively buries this knowledge under a pile of pious-sounding words and excuses, and he does it day in and day out until he finally finds himself standing before the very God he denied. That is our problem. Now go to 1 Corinthians. Keep your finger there. We'll be back. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that's on page 130. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want you to see what is happening in this speech that Stephen is giving and what is happening in their response. Again, in chapter 1, verse 18... There's a lot, I'm having to cherry pick. Forgive me, there's a lot more we could do, but I hope these will be sufficient. For the word of the cross, which is the gospel, okay? For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing, what? Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So when we stand and we're singing songs of praise and thanksgiving and we're able to do it out of a heart that's been saved, it's because we understand the gospel. But why do we understand the gospel? Because it wasn't that long ago for some of you that you thought it was foolishness, didn't you? For some of you, it wasn't that long ago that you thought this was boring. For some of you, at some point, all of a sudden things change, and you're not sure why things change. You were just minding your own business, maybe doing your religious thing, going to church, and then all of a sudden something happened. Have you ever experienced that? Where just something happens. It's like a light bulb. Something clicks. And you're like, I love this. I, I, I delight in this. What is that? Something has happened, and I would simply say that it's the state of becoming no longer unregenerate, dead in your sins. Something made you alive. He goes on, he says, For it's written, I, that being God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Why or how? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. And this is a problem. You have all sorts of men and women all claiming that there's many paths to God and ways to God, and we just need to have these discoveries. But the harsh reality is that you cannot and you will not because the wisdom of man is designed by God that it can never find God. You must come his way. God was well pleased, he says, through the foolishness of the message, which is the gospel, preach to save those who believe. And for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ is crucified. 
to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles to foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The reality is that in the state of unregenerate, you are not able to see the gospel the right way. You will always see it as foolishness. You will always trip over it. You will see it as restricting your freedom, restricting your joy. It's stupid. It's, it's, it's not intelligent. Follow the science, as they say. It will never make sense to you. And yet, in God's grace, something changes, and you see it as the power of God unto salvation. Now, go back to Romans, but go now to Romans chapter 8. That's on page 123, Romans 8. And then here, I just want to give you five brutal truths about the unregenerate person. Five brutal truths about the unregenerate person. Now understand, he, he introduces, and again, we're stepping right into the passage, this idea of the flesh. And the flesh is simply, he describes those who have a mind that's set on the spirit and the one who has a mind set on the flesh. The one with their mind set on the spirit is just simply a believer, a person who has been made alive in Jesus Christ, and they believe. They're, they're following. They're a Christian, okay? That's all it means. It's not two different types of Christians. There's the Christian and the non-Christian. The mindset on the flesh is a non-Christian. So uh, just understand that as we look at this. Five brutal truths about the unregenerate person. In chapter five, uh, 8, verse 5, For those according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. The flesh is talking about that which is sinful and broken. It's not talking about your physical body. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now he's going to explain. For this way reason, the mind set on the flesh is what? It's death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Five truths. Did you see them? The first one is in uh, verse 6. The mindset on the flesh, the unregenerate, we'll just use that phrase, or term, the unregenerate mind is dead. The first truth about being unregenerate is that you're dead. You're spiritually dead. You have no way to respond to God any more than a corpse can respond to my commands. You walk in the state of deadness. Second is that the unregenerate mind is at war with God. Why do I say that? Notice verse 7. Because the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile toward whom? Toward God. You will not submit to him. You will, you will barter with him, discuss things with him, argue with him. You will give him deals that you're hoping he will take, but you will not submit yourself unto him. You will resist. It is the heart of the unregenerate. You will be at war with God. Then, along with that, he says in verse uh, 7, 
Not only are we at war with God, but the unregenerate mind is not willing to subject itself to the law of God. Notice that this is talking about the will, that you're not willing to do it. You just won't. People will say, you need to do this, you need to go this way, and you're like, I'm not doing it. No. And you'll say it in all sorts of ways, some of them seemingly very nice, but you will not do it. The will is will, will not submit to God. But then he adds to that, why? Why can will they not submit to God? Notice the last phrase. For it is not even able to do so. So it's one thing if you were looking around the room and I said, look, look over there and see your salvation. Look, just look over there and you're just a jerk. And you say, no, I won't, I won't. You can't make me. You know people like that, right? Just cross their arms and, no, you can't make me. I, I'm not going to. And, and it's like, oh, if only he was willing. But let's say that you say that to the person. Unfortunately, his eyeballs have been gouged out. He can look all day long, but he can't look. He does not have the faculties to look. Do you understand that? And that's what Paul is saying here. Not only are you unwilling to submit, you can't. You lack the actual ability to submit yourself under your maker. And therefore, the last is in verse 8. The unregenerate mind, is impos- it is impossible for him to please God. Five brutal truths. The great sin then, beloved, is not what we often call sin. Now go back to Romans 1. The great sin against God is not what we tend to call sin. Pick your, pick your poison. You can pick whatever you think in your mind that you think is the doozy of the sin, the one that really gets you angry, the one that when you hear somebody having committed it, that you say there's a special place in hell for that person, where your stomach turns. And I've seen, I think, just about them all. When I was a jail chaplain, the night stalker, for those of you old enough, he was mine. The Menendez brothers were in my jail. I was, by God's grace, able to lead to Christ, the valley rapist, whose last of his, I think, 12 rapes was an 80-year-old woman, and he was caught in the act. Torturers, murderers, rapists of every type. When I was a police officer, the ones that I hated were the molestations and the abuse. And you would. You'd walk away and you'd be angry. You'd be angry. This is evil. This is evil. But what's the great sin? Well, in chapter 1, verse... 21, we see it. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Instead, they became futile in their mind. The great grand sin, the one that is the granddaddy of them all, is that you will not honor God nor give thanks to him. You will not see that he is God and you are not. And every other sin flows out from there. Every sin. In fact, he lists many of them later on in that chapter. 
Unregenerate humanity by nature has this very inflated sense of their wisdom. So they say, and he says in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became foolish. They have this inflated sense of their wisdom. They're not afraid to parade it before a willing audience who will all ooh and ah over their grand and glorious wisdom, and yet it's foolishness in reality. Unregenerate humanity, in verse 23, by nature, worships. Everyone in this room is a worshiper. Whether you're in Christ or not, you are a worshiper. But it's always, if you're unregenerate, going to be a counterfeit God of their own choosing. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of in the form of corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. All of this is what they've done because they would not acknowledge God and give honor to him as God and give thanks to him as God. They intend instead turn their eyes and their hearts to things made by God and they worship a creature. It can be a concept It can be anything in your mind. You say, well, I don't worship a four-footed creature. I'm not like that. Well, great. Then you have your own idol. But apart from Jesus Christ and apart from God working in your soul, all of humanity is in this state of unregenerate. In fact, James chapter 4 says this. Actually, let me say something first. There's actually an inspirational quote I came across And it said this. Now listen, you'll hear this all the time, this type. The best time for new beginnings is now. The best time for new beginnings is now. Now you can see that on a poster, can't you? And you can like, wow, that's good. I laughed. I laughed when I saw it. I laughed because it is the perfect description of the mind of an unregenerate, dead-in-sin person. That's what an unregenerate, dead-in-sin type of person would say. I hope none of you have said it. It is a quote from a person who thinks he is alive, but who is dead. It is a mind that says that all that is needed is to reorganize things a bit. And things will improve. But fails to see that it is merely readjusting the corpse within the grave. It is uttered out of the foundation of self-worship and self-improvement. Rather than a heart that has been made new in Christ Jesus. Am I clear enough on that? It's evil. But it strikes at the core of us as Americans. James chapter 4 says that the source of our fightings and even our murders is the very fact that we have our desires that are not being met, and so we fight, rage, and even commit murder. We're all idolaters apart from God. You know my definition of idolatry. I've said it enough times. But even in the life of a Christian where idols have a way of encroaching into us, how do we know? Is this an idol or not? Well, the answer is very simple. Do I sin to get it? 
Or I do, do I sin when I don't get it? Either way, your idol's been revealed. In James chapter 4, further down in verses 13 to 15, he says that to live a life assuming that we will conduct business and then go home is simply evidence, he says, of idolatry. When you say, honey, I'm going to the grocery store and I'll be back in about an hour, you have committed adultery. Uh, Not adultery, idolatry. Rather, he says, you should say, if the Lord wills, I shall go to the store and then return. It's not a point of legalism that you hear the leadership of this church utter so frequently, Lord willing, I will, Lord willing, we will. It is that simple understanding that we live under the mind and the hand and the will of God, and anything that presumes God's mind is folly. James goes on to says, but in doing so, you boast in your arrogance, and it is evil. That's unregenerate. That's how it looks. That's how it functions. And no man or woman escapes it. From the moment we are conceived to the moment we enter into eternity, that is the power under which all of us dwell and serve. Now, we'll serve it in any way we want, and there's all kinds of ways. Some are very nice and pleasant and seem to get along with everybody well, and others are vile and disgusting and cut short your life, but it's all still under sin, Now go to Acts 7. No, I haven't just started my sermon, okay? I'm almost done. All of this is illustrated by Stephen in Acts 7. He starts out in, and I'm just going to be going quickly here, uh, but he starts out in his speech talking about Abraham. He's called out of a world of idolatry and into a life under God. And then what he does is he quickly sketches the stories of Genesis all the way up to the sons of Jacob. So this is a wonderful, masterful uh, sketching of the Old Testament flow, all right? So he starts with Abraham that every Jew would love and honor, and he begins his sketch. So he ends with the sons of Jacob. From there, in verse 9, he picks up this man named Joseph, who was one of the sons of Jacob. But he was not just one of the sons. He was the one favored, and he was loved by Jacob. And so what do the other sons do? They become jealous. They reject him, and they sell him into slavery. These sons are the ones who would become the tribes of Israel. And yet he continues in this story and, and he points out that though they rejected him, who was with him? God. God was with Joseph and raised him up ultimately to be their savior. Are you seeing the parallels? He raises up the one who is rejected and he becomes the one who saves Israel in the time of great famine and brings them in. From there, he turns his attention to Stephen, not to Stephen, to, to Moses, and he pulls out a very interesting story. It's the story where he had been living with the Pharaoh, and, and he found that 
uh, Egyptian who was abusing an Israelite. And he, he confronts him and actually kills him. But notice in verse 25 of our, our chapter that Moses was trying to communicate to his people that salvation or deliverance was available, available to them if they would only see it. What he was doing was, I will defend you, I will protect you, I will save you, and they didn't see it. In fact, they rejected him. They didn't understand But even after rejection, Moses faithfully led them. Notice in verse 38 that that God, let me get there myself. This is one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him, him being Moses, on Mount Sinai, and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. He was receiving the very living word of God to pass on to Israel, and what does verse 39 say? And our fathers were what? They were unwilling. Unregenerate minds always do that. They would not understand, they rejected him. Yet God still raised him up to be their savior. Even though they rejected him, he was their savior. Then Stephen speaks of God making a covenant of blessing with Israel after being delivered out of Egypt. And Israel responded in verses 40 to 43 by worshiping idols. If you know the story, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the word and the covenant where God is going to make a covenant with this nation. He will be their God. And the whole time he's up there, because he's up there for a whole 40 days and we don't know if he's alive, they then make a molten calf and make an idol and now they're involved in all sorts of sin down below. That is the mind and the heart of an unregenerate people. They respond by worshiping idols and reject God and his savior, Moses. Then we find him using the building of the temple. And, he sh- and, and basically showing them how they turned it into an idol as well. Because they're all upset that he, he supposedly is saying I'm gonna, that the temple will be destroyed, which it was. And they're all furious about that. Why? Because they turned the temple into an idol. Even though it was a good thing, it was a necessary thing and a right thing, they managed to turn what was a very good thing for them to worship God and be right with God into an idol. And his point is, look, guys, do you really think God dwelt there? As if he could dwell in anything made by human hands? And all of this then gets summed up in verses 51 to 57. He then just points his finger like a prophet and he says, you who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, you who are doing just as your fathers did. It's interesting, in the beginning of this speech, he says, our father, Abraham. But now he's he's not going to associate with them because their fathers are the disobedient ones of Israel and he has nothing to do with that. You're doing just like they did. You killed the prophets. And the result of that is they're furious. 
In verse 54, they were cut to the quick, and instead of repenting and grieving and seeking and crying out, what must we do to be delivered or saved, they begin gnashing their teeth at him. They're furious. How dare Stephen judge them? They literally even cover their ears. This is something a small child does. Yeah, no one there. They're furious. How dare you? And in a fit of self-righteous rage, they drag him away to be stoned to death. And so verse 54, or 52 is played out one more time. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, which is Jesus Christ, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And they play it out one more time. And they still think they're doing Right. That's what the unregenerate mind does. It does evil and calls it good. So how is there hope? That's a cruddy... I've spent a long time here basically digging a hole that none of us can climb out of if I've done it right. How do we, how do we find escape? If our eyes and ears and heart is unable and unwilling to ever hear and believe, then where is the hope? Only in God's regenerating work will any man or woman believe, love, trust, or obey God. Only through God's regenerating work. So with that, one last passage. I didn't write down the page number. Just go backwards. It's the the book prior in the book of John, chapter 3, and we'll briefly look at one key passage. If we are unregenerate by nature and therefore unable in any way to respond to God, then the only hope is if God regenerates us because we can't make ourselves alive. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, being Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless you, that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Underline the word cannot. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? That's an unregenerate mind listening. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot, again, underline, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now pay attention. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it's comes, it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone, everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus comes and makes a statement. He doesn't ask a question, and yet Jesus answers the question that was never stated. He comes to a, he looks at a man who is a ruler, a Pharisee, a, a, a godly man in the eyes of man, but he's unregenerate. And he is coming to him about, hey, you're, you're obviously a man of God because you're doing things nobody can do. 
And he just ignores the compliments and everything else. And he says, unless a man is born again, made alive, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A Jew, a good Jew, assumes he's going to see the kingdom of God, which is just eternity, heaven, however you want to call it. It's just a given. I'm a Jew. And I'm a good Jew, therefore I will see it. And now Jesus says, unless you've been born again, you will never see it. Notice it's talking about seeing it. We're all born. We're all born. That in itself is insufficient because we are all born under the dominion of sin. And that's what he's getting at about this new birth, this being born again. So he talks about, look, you cannot, unless you are born of the water and the spirit, you can't, now he talks about not just seeing, but enter into the kingdom. You have to have both of these births. And there's different ways people understand this passage. I'm going to give you how I think it best renders out. He's creating up what's a very typical Hebrew parallel in verses 6 and 7, or rather 6. He says that you have the first birth, which is that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And then there's the second birth that is that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And they correlate to being born of the water and the spirit. You must be born of the water. You must have a natural birth. You must be alive. You must have been born. But second, you must be born of the Spirit. And if you have been born but never have been born of the Spirit, you will never see nor enter the kingdom of God. The first birth brings you under the power of sin, and only God can break the power of sin. You can't even gaze into this kingdom. You're blind to it. It's impossible for you to even see what is being offered. Because you can't even see it, you can't enter it unless you have this new birth. And this new birth is something that only the Spirit of God does. So we're born of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who does the rebirth, if you will. In fact, he describes it fascinating in verse 8. It it is a work of the Spirit that's unique and it stands alone outside of all the other saving works of God. This is such a unique doctrine. The saving, regenerating work of the Spirit is so unique because it is outside the other saving works of God. Never do you want to confuse the new birth with an empowerment by the Spirit, or the walking in the Spirit. Those are different. This is regeneration, being born again of the Spirit. The regenerating work of the Spirit is indispensable for the saving of a sinner. Left to our own devices, we shall always fall short. We will always go astray from the way of God. The power of sin is such a brutal dictator that it grips us so tightly that it actually insinuates itself into the very core of our being, the very marrow of what we are. Without the Holy Spirit giving a a person new life, you will never repent. For how can a dead man repent and turn? Unless the Spirit gives you new life, you will never believe. Unless the Spirit gives you new life, you will never love God, follow God, obey God, anything. You will simply exist in the deadness of your sin. Without the Spirit taking the heart of stone and making it anew into a heart of flesh, 
deadness is the only reality for a person. Though a believer is elect by God before time, it is in the work of the Spirit regenerating people in space and time where the rest of God's saving works happen. Though we were elect before, then heaven's were even made, it says that in space and time, there was that moment. I described it earlier. That moment, it might have been a, a, a slow dawning. This is very common in, in uh, households of the faith where you raise, raise children in the gospel. We're seeing that even in our school. They are so, the gospel is so infused into it that the kids are already beginning to think of themselves as Christians, even if they're not yet a Christian where it's just being brought along the, on the skid of the, of the gospel, and it just slowly dawns until at some point you say, I believe that. But then there's others of you that your life was one of rebellion, and you were just going through life, and then something radical happened. And it's like, I can see now. I can love now. I can understand now. It all makes sense. What is that? It's the regenerating work of the Spirit. How do you make that happen? How do you make that happen? You can't. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but don't know where it comes from and where it is going. In the same way is everyone who's born of the Spirit. It is in the sovereign pleasure of the Lord to save whom he wishes, but also when. All we can do is preach the gospel. All we can do is point people to Christ. We can call them, believe, turn. But there is a moment where it is all of God that we rest and we say, as the Lord is pleased. As I preach every Sunday, in the back of my mind, I am praying for people. I am looking at you and I'm considering you. I'm considering parents who carry the weight of children who think that they're so clever because they mock their parents' faith. And yet all the parents can see is that they are literally hurtling their way into hell and their heart is broken. I will look at husbands who carry the weight of an unbelieving wife. I look at wives who carry the weight of an unbelieving husband. I carry the weight in my mind of the people who are walking here every single Sunday and yet I have no sense that they know Christ. They have done their religious duties, but do they know Christ? Have they been regenerate? Has the Spirit brought life out of death? Until the Spirit works, there's no calling, no adoption, no redemption, no forgiveness, no justification, no sanctification, no eternal life. When a person is born again, regenerated, made alive, or however you want to say it, what naturally springs forth is faith. Just as the unregenerate heart naturally rejected, the regenerate heart naturally believes. So take all of those truths of uh, brutal truths in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, and, and flip them. Now, instead of walking in death, you walk in newness of life. Now, instead of being a hostile toward God, you are what? You're at peace with God. Now you will submit, willingly submit yourself to God because you're now able to submit yourself to God. And now because you're alive in Jesus Christ, you can please God. 
And so as you share the gospel, beloved, you, when you challenge people to come and believe and follow Christ, what you are also doing, whether you know it or not, is you're asking God to make the person alive, to awaken their dead soul unto salvation. So let me wrap this all up by just simply saying this. What does it look like then to be regenerate? How do you know? What, what would be some evidences? Well, first, they believe and love Jesus Christ. The Spirit always brings you to Jesus. Always. You will finally see that Jesus is your hope. And so what you naturally resisted and hated, you now love and embrace. See what happened in in the speech? He, He speaks of all this, but they resist, they hate. Their hearts have not been made alive. And yet one of them, A man named Saul, in just a few chapters, is going to be on his way to go murder more Christians, and God will regenerate him, and he will become the greatest of the apostles. That's what happens. It's just how it works, but this man has to die first. A regenerate heart will finally see Jesus Christ as he is. The effect of regeneration is... A calling out of darkness, the Bible says, and into the light of Christ. It's just all of a sudden, it's like I can see. It's a resting and hope that settles your soul as you see the fullness and and even the vastness of his saving provision on your behalf. He is where you find finally your eternal refuge that you never even knew you needed. But now you see it and you will love it. And the rest of your life as a Christian, beloved, is either improving on that in, in, in your grasp and enjoyment of it or starving yourself of it. But it never changes that fact that God has made you alive in Christ. So he becomes your final eternal refuge from sin and death. Why? Because he's the keeper of your soul. None who place their trust in him None who come to him, he said, can be lost. For who can snatch them out of my father's hand and my hand? You're doubly held by the love of God that he says that we, the father and the son, we hold you in our grasp. And no one, he says, can snatch you. When born again, you find Jesus to be your savior and your Lord. When you're regenerate, you who once thought it to be folly, now you find solace and delight in Jesus. You who once were ashamed of the Christian faith and of Jesus Christ, now freely confess him. When I'm talking to people and teaching people, there comes a point where I'll look at people because they start talking like they're Christian, and I'll ask them, are you now confessing Christ? Are you confessing Christ? Because it sounds like you're confessing Christ. And what I'm waiting for is the day that they look. They might do it with tears. They might do it with trembling. They might be doing it with all kinds of awkwardness because, wow, this is, you're calling me out here. You're calling me out. But when the regenerating work of the Spirit is there, they look and they will eventually say, yes, I am confessing Christ. Because God has worked. God has worked. Something clicks and they love it. What happened? Well, the wind of the Holy Spirit blew as he wished, and that person was born again. You and I will never make a person believe. You can't. 
but we can call them to believe in Jesus Christ. We cannot make them accept the bad news of their sinfulness, but we can tell them of it. We can be like Stephan and we can speak the truth. In fact, beloved, we must speak the truth and then let the Spirit do as the Spirit will do. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us so much. We become afraid of sharing the gospel because we don't feel ourselves to be wise enough, smart enough, good enough, gifted enough, which just reveals to us that we don't really understand that it is the power of God unto salvation. That we sometimes think it's through our cleverness, Father, that we actually might lead someone to Christ when in fact it's always going to be you. The Spirit taking a dead man or woman and making them alive. Father, push that upon our hearts. When we watch the political things going on in our nation and around the world, as we watch what has happening within the lives of those we know and maybe love, let us never forget that we're looking at an unregenerate world, dead in sin, and until and only when God, you work, can things change. Let's be content with that and simply be found to be like Stephen was, a man whose honor was to speak truth. I ask in your son's name, amen.